Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk and the first of a series of special coronavirus episodes. This one posted on March 10, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. Wade Gibbs was a member of the board of editors and a senior writer at Scientific American from 1993 to 2006. He's now a contributing editor, and he's in a unique position to bring us reporting and insights about the current coronavirus pandemic. While at Scientific American, Gibbs wrote numerous articles that gave him experience highly relevant to the current situation. In 1999, he wrote a piece titled Trailing a Virus. To research that article, he traveled into the hot zone of the highly lethal Nipah virus outbreak in Malaysia. Like coronavirus, that one also spread from bats to people. He co-wrote the 2005 article, Preparing for a Pandemic, The Plan to Fight a New Flu, which has obvious relevance for our current situation. That article is currently available free on our website. He interviewed Bill Gates for a 2016 Q&A called Bill Gates Views Good Data as Key to Global Health. That piece is also up on the website. And Gibbs wrote the 2016 article, What Ails the Human Race, about a project called The Global Burden of Disease, which began a new chapter in epidemiological modeling. That work originated at the University of Washington Institute for Health Metrics in Seattle, where it continues to this day, and where Gibbs plans to go for reporting for a future podcast. Which brings us to the second factor that makes Gibbs's situation unique. In addition to being a science writer of great expertise in the area of epidemics, Gibbs lives in Kirkland, Washington, the epicenter of the U.S. coronavirus outbreak. So what we envision for this series of podcasts is a combination of traditional science reporting and first-person accounts from Gibbs about the situation in Kirkland and the surrounding area where the virus has so far hit the hardest in the U.S. We plan on posting at least one podcast a week for the foreseeable future as the coronavirus situation plays out. And now, here's Wade Gibbs. There's some weeks when history seems to unfold before our eyes. This past week has been one of those in the United States. And here in Kirkland, Washington, where I live, we have a front row seat to this fast-growing coronavirus epidemic. My neighborhood is ground zero, the hot zone. On February 29th, we learned that COVID-19 had claimed its first fatality in the U.S. here, in this city of about 90,000 on the shores of Lake Washington, just across the bridge from Seattle. As I read about the man in his 50s who had died at Evergreen Health Hospital, What had seemed a distant and abstract threat suddenly felt immediate and very real. I am a man in his 50s. I walked across my living room and looked out the window at Evergreen Health, just down the hill, less than a mile away. I thought, okay, here we go. We in Kirkland and King County will be the guinea pigs, testing how the public health systems in America cope with a crisis that scientists warned us would inevitably come, that we could have planned for, but that has found us unready. Our experts and elected officials and employers are scrambling to keep up with the torrent of new scientific information about COVID-19 and the virus that causes it, which goes by the name SARS-CoV-2. Here in Washington State, they seem to be doing their best to act on that information as they make tough decisions about what to shut down, what to keep open, and what to tell the public. In this episode, I'll examine one particularly difficult question that officials face when to close schools. I'll talk with a local 8th grader whose online petition to close schools in our district has attracted more than 30,000 signatures. We'll hear King County's public health officer explain why they have urged schools to remain open for now, 
as long as they don't have any confirmed cases of the disease. And we'll hear from experts at Johns Hopkins University and from Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, about the mystery of why so few children have become seriously ill with COVID-19. But first, I need to explain what the past week was like here in Kirkland. COVID-19 rolled through our city like a psychological tsunami, sweeping aside other topics of conversation. Actually, a, a wildfire is probably a better metaphor. Infections have jumped quickly and unpredictably from one spot to another with responders racing behind to catch up. Like the wildfire smoke that now darkens skies across the Pacific Northwest each summer, this epidemic has cast a pall on daily life. On the other side of the hill from my house, about a half mile away, is the hot spot of the outbreak here, a large skilled nursing home called Life Care Center of Kirkland. More than 100 elderly people live there, and 180 employees, plus lots of visitors, go in and out each day, or did until it was put under quarantine. On that last day of February, when the first death was reported, 52 residents and staff at Life Care were already showing symptoms. More have fallen ill since. As I record this just over a week later on March 9th, 20 people have died of COVID-19 in my neighborhood. All of them were at least 50 years old. 19 of them lived at Life Care. The CDC is there now, but before they arrived, our EMTs were there taking the very sick to the hospital. As a result, one quarter of our city's firefighters are now in quarantine and off-duty. The number of confirmed infections have been growing at an unnerving pace. The official case count here in King County, which includes the big cities of Seattle and Bellevue, has soared in one week from 10 to 116. The number of counties in Washington with confirmed cases jumped from 2 to 7. Statewide, 162 people have tested positive for the virus as of this afternoon. Only one of those people has been reported to have fully recovered from COVID-19, though many are on the road to recovery. The confirmed cases include at least 27 people under the age of 40 and three children. None of these numbers include the many mild cases that we know are out there because people who don't have severe symptoms just haven't been tested yet. Health officials here and elsewhere warn us that the number of confirmed cases is certain to skyrocket as testing capacity expands over the next week or two. And that will put more pressure on officials to start closing schools. The question is, should they? My wife works in the library at Kamayaki Middle School in Kirkland, and my son has been taking the bus to Seattle every day to attend his classes at the University of Washington. So one of the first things we talked about in my family was how these daily mass gatherings inside their schools increase the risk of contact with people who may be infected, who may be transmitting the virus, but who don't know it because they're in that early phase before symptoms appear, or because they're among the lucky fraction who become infected but simply don't get any symptoms at all. Researchers who studied passengers on the Diamond Princess cruise ship that was quarantined off the coast of Japan recently reported on Friday that 15 to 20 percent of passengers who caught the virus didn't show symptoms, even though they were carrying about as high a viral load as those who fell ill. The scientists wrote that this discovery has, quote, significant public health implications. On Friday morning, the University of Washington and Seattle University announced that classes for all 57,000 of their students would stop meeting in person and switch to online remote instruction for the remaining two weeks of the winter quarter. Most of the final exams were canceled. This followed decisions by most of the major employers in our county, including Microsoft, Amazon, Boeing, Google, Facebook, and the county government, directing those employees who can work from home to do so. Yet the public health department stuck to its guidance to keep most schools open. Here's what Patty Hayes, the Director for Public Health in Seattle and King County, said about that on Wednesday. Public health is not recommending closing schools at this time. 
unless there has been a confirmed case within that school. The reason we are not recommending school closures is because children have not been shown to be a high-risk group, which can be so much different than what we expect for other illnesses. Now, we respect every school's individual decision about closure or, or postponement of activities. As I said, if there's a confirmed case in the school, public health will work with that, particularly school and the district, to determine what measures are best to protect. And this could include the closure, and we will determine with that school when reopening would occur. The North Shore School District, which serves the city of Bothell to our north, did shut all 33 of its public schools on Thursday for up to 14 days. Teachers will instead conduct their classes online, and the district plans to provide sack lunches, loaner computers, and internet hotspots to students who need them. But here in Kirkland, our Lake Washington School District is elected to remain open, so my wife went to work today at our middle school. The classrooms have a lot of empty desks. About 20% of students have been staying home, and the schools are excusing those absences, whether the student or a family member is sick or not. I spoke with one 14-year-old who hasn't been to school in a week and who launched an online petition to pressure the district to change its policy. My name is Michael Finlayson. I'm in eighth grade and I'm the ASB co-president at Kamaikin Middle School. I learned last Saturday that the um, first death from the coronavirus in the, in the whole entire U.S. had occurred. And after further research, I noticed that it was only a half a mile away from where I live. It was at Evergreen Hospital and... That really brought up a red flag to me because I remember reading that it really affects the elderly people, infants, and um, people who are immunocompromised. And then I started to think about my grandma and my mom, who is a um, quadriplegic who is nonverbal, and she can't get out a, a productive cough, so she holds on to colds for months. And that would basically mean that the coronavirus would be deadly to both her and my grandma. And that really concerned me. I, I knew I was at risk for getting the virus, um, at a, actually a very high risk for getting the virus. Um, and I knew I wouldn't have bad symptoms. I knew I would be able to survive the virus. But it got me thinking and I thought um, I could be um, a segue for this vi virus to infect others who are more vulnerable. Michael's mother, Tanya, who has cerebral palsy, uses head movements to enter Morse code into a computer that speaks for her. Here's what she had to say about the situation. They are being very reckless. So much harm could come to so many families. And that's why I decided to start the petition. As of Sunday, 31,000 students, parents, and others have added their names to the statement, which urges the school district to shut schools until scientists can tell us more about how the virus spreads to and from children. But closing the schools has ripple effects through society that complicate the decision. Here's what King County Public Health Officer Jeff Duchin had to say about that on Wednesday. You know, we know we can't close schools forever, so we have to think what's the right timing, what's the right dura duration, and really, do we really want to close schools or do we want to keep schools open so faculty can um, continue to come in and maybe serve children who have special needs, get school food there, mod um, operate in some modified fashion. But the bottom line is um, school closures um, also have some very significant downsides. We, uh, we, we know more about the downsides than we do with the benefits at this point. In 2009, schools here were closed as a global outbreak of H1N1 influenza, also known as swine flu, swept through our region. 
We closed schools during um, H1N1, and we saw tremendous community disruption. Parents had to stay home from work who needed to be at work. Um, it affected our health care workforce as well. Many nurses um, were pulled out to care for their children. We found that the children gathered elsewhere when we w weren't um, allowing them to go to school. They went to the mall. And we may have a paradoxical um, effect in that if you are if your children are home from school frequently um, it may be parents and elders um, that will be caring for the children and those um, people are, are more vulnerable um, in addition with COVID-19 in particular, we really don't know the role of children yet in transmitting this disease. We don't know, uh, we don't know how important they are in moving this virus through the community. Um, they can be infected, we know that, and um, we know that they um, tend to spread infections pretty well in general among one, um, themselves, but they clearly don't have a high uh, serious illness rate. If you think about it, that is very strange. Can you name any other highly infectious disease that leaves four and five-year-olds largely untouched, but knocks 40 and 50-year-olds on their backs? Anthony Fauci, the director of NIH's Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, talked about this puzzle on Friday in an interview with Howard Bauchner of the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's really interesting. I, I still don't totally understand it. Is the lack of detectable infections in children as well as the lack of any degree of serious disease, which seems almost unbelievable. They have to be getting infected. Why they're not developing clinical disease is really interesting. This is something we really need to study. In a briefing on Capitol Hill Friday, experts from Johns Hopkins University updated congressional staffers on what researchers are learning about COVID-19 in children. Here's Tom Inglesby director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a professor at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. We have not seen serious mortality in children, although we are seeing cases, as opposed to what we initially thought, there are substantial numbers of cases, pediatric cases in the 0 to 10 and 10 to 20 age group. And as of last night, there were more than 300 million kids around the world that were out of school because of this virus. In a future episode, I'll talk with an expert in pediatric infectious disease about what might be protecting kids from COVID-19. New preprints of scientific papers posted in the past few days by researchers in China and Singapore offer some tantalizing clues. One paper by researchers at KK Women's and Children's Hospital in Singapore details a case in which doctors tested a six-month-old infant after both parents developed COVID-19. They found high numbers of the virus in the baby's airways, blood, and stool. They continued to find virus in the child's nose for the next 16 days. So this baby was clearly infectious, but it didn't get very sick. The researchers point out that no children died of SARS when that earlier coronavirus outbreak spread internationally in 2002 and 2003, though children were infected and some fell ill. Scientists still don't know why, but they have suggested at least three possibilities. It could be that kids have a more effective immune response because they are exposed so frequently to respiratory viruses in school. Another suggestion is that children are generally very healthy and heal faster overall compared to adults. But there's a third possible explanation that is very counterintuitive but intriguing. Maybe young people have a less robust immune response to the virus, and that is what saves them. Many of the adults who are in critical condition with COVID-19 experience a runaway inflammatory response known as septic shock. The immune system locks into a virtually unstoppable positive feedback loop that ultimately causes multiple organs to fail. It could be that in kids, 
the virus isn't able to provoke the body into destroying itself. That's it for this update from Ground Zero and America's struggle with this new coronavirus. We're fortunate in Seattle to have so many leading medical research centers where scientists are thoroughly analyzing the virus and the disease it causes. In future episodes, I'll talk with some of those researchers on the front lines about how we can use what they've learned to improve our public health actions. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Wade Gibbs.